Welcome to another episode of Becoming Referrable, the podcast that helps you be the kind of advisor people can't stop talking about. I'm Julie Littlechild, and on this week's show, Steve and I speak with Alan Moore. Alan is the co-founder of the XY Planning Network, but his actual title is Director of Speeding Things Up, which you've got to love. Just by way of background, Alan co-founded the XY Planning Network with Michael Kitsis, and they set out with a goal to create a network that supports and encourages financial advisors who they describe as forging a new path in the industry. They offer a turnkey solution for startup firms, but also work with existing practices who specifically want to get better at serving next-gen clients. But how they recommended you do that is really important because, as he'll tell you, age is not a niche. So we'll talk to Alan about the role of niche in building a great business, and we'll talk to him about the unique needs of younger clients. And with that, let's get on with the show. We are here with Alan Moore. So excited to have you. And, you know, Alan, I have to say, I wasn't just excited to have you on the show because of the business that you run, although that's obviously a big part of it, but I love your story and your path here and some of the twists and turns it took. So I'm hoping I can ask you a bit about that, but welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Well, look, maybe since I've said there are twists and turns, maybe you can just start with a, a bit of an introduction to, you know, where are you today? What does the business look like? And just a quick history on how you got here. Yeah, I'll, I'll start with the history real quick because it, it definitely led me to the sort of current state. Um, I was lucky enough to get my degree in financial planning. Uh, not a lot of folks can say that just because they're fairly new degree programs, but I got my undergraduate degree in family financial planning uh, and then ended up staying for my master's degree because I was torn on if I wanted to be an academic or I wanted to be a practitioner. And during grad school, I quickly learned that I did not want to be an academic because there were too many politics uh, and I don't <laughs> manage politics well. I tend to be a very honest, just off-the-cuff type person and uh, found out that doesn't fit in well. So uh, I left to go uh, for the dream job. I, I found uh, Rick Kaler uh, with Kaler Financial Group out in South Dakota, phenomenal planner, one of the fathers of kind of financial therapy and this blending of money and psychology, and went to work for him. And it was one of those scenarios of he's in his mid-50s, I'm a young gun, coming in, excited, uh, and over time I'll take over the firm and be able to buy it out. Uh, but what I quickly learned was that while Rick and I were on the same page, uh, his team and I were not. And his team was really happy with where things were at. They weren't very growth-oriented uh, and didn't really appreciate a 23-year-old hothead coming in and telling them uh, that they could do their jobs better, uh, come to find out. So uh, I, <laughs> I was there for a whopping 10 months before moving on to my second job. I uh, worked for a, a firm in Wisconsin. Sort of the same scenario. Come in. Uh, you know, you'll be able to open your own firm one day and be able to sort of take over. Uh, and again, just didn't sit well. The The fit just wasn't there. And so at uh, just after my 25th birthday, I uh, got called into the boss's office six months into that job and told not to come back on Monday <laughs> and, yeah, there you go. Uh, and, and got fired. And, and so I was sort of, you know, torn on what do I do? And I had to look at it and go, well, at some point, you have to realize I'm the problem. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, you know, definition of insanity is doing the same thing okay. over and over and expecting a different result. So, what, 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 what is it that they say? You know, if you if you if you happen to meet a jerk at some point during the day, then he's probably a jerk. But if everybody you meet is a jerk, then you're probably <laughs> the jerk. <laughs> it's probably me. 
<laughs> yeah, and, you know, I realized that I wanted something that wasn't available. And what I wanted was control. I wanted ownership. I wanted to be able to do things my way. And, you know, the, the financial planning career path is a 10 to 20 year path from a paraplanner to associate advisor to lead advisor to relationship manager, whatever that path is, if, if you're even fortunate enough to have one laid out for you. It's never two to three years long. And, and I have about a six month tolerance for anything in my life. And so uh, to, to be told 10 or 20 years from now, you'll get equity in the firm. I promise. I'm not going to put that on paper and sign it, but I promise one day. Uh, just didn't sit well with me. And so I decided, you know what? I have two options. I'm 25 years old. I have no money. I have no clients. I'm living in Wisconsin where I've never lived before. I'm originally from Georgia. And I said, I can either go take another job as an associate advisor in an RIA, uh, making decent money, or I can start my own firm. You know, and and see what happens. And if the firm succeeds, great. If it fails, I'll go get a job as an associate advisor inside of an RIA, making decent money. So I'm like, well, why not? Let's give it a shot. And uh, Alan, can I can I div diverge just for a second yeah. and ask you a question that has nothing to do, whatever, with referability? Sure. Um, so Mark Tabergen used to make the joke that you know most of, most of the uh, you know lone wolf kinds of practices are started by people who just really wanted to do it their way themselves, and that everybody that they knew would agree that that's the best way for them to do it. Um, so what? Uh, and he said it way better and funnier than I did. Um, but what uh, those two experiences? Because I've had very similar experiences, and and probably like you, I'm tremendously headstrong and and have no difficulty telling everybody what I think. Um, what insights did you pick up from those two experiences about how to, um, you know, about how to create change within a firm? Because it's not just you as the upstart kid who wants to, you know make a better model. But I mean, people who own firms have that same issue when they go off and they get inspired at a conference or, or by, a, by a unique idea and they want to go make big changes. You know, what insights do you, do you walk away with from those experiences that, that may help those, those other people? You have to be patient. Uh, it's the one thing that I have learned over time. And if we sort of jump ahead and, and now that I have a business partner, Michael Kitsis, who uh, he and I are, are not polar opposites, but we're very different in terms of our strengths. And so I'm a quick start. I'm somebody who can get something going. When I have an idea, I'm ready to go. And he's more of a data gathering, sit back, analyze, be patient kind of guy. Uh, and we balance each other out. And what I have learned is the power of waiting. I've learned the power of getting buy-in from everyone because I'm just a you know, a bull in a china shop, which works if you're by yourself. It doesn't work if you need to get other people to buy in. So if you want to go and you want to implement a new service model inside your firm or try a new marketing method, you can't just say, well, I'm just going to do this. Uh, even if you're the owner, that's the, that's the one other piece that I've learned is just because you're the owner doesn't mean you get to do anything you want. If you have employees, team members, staff, because You've got to get buy-in from them for, for them to help you. Otherwise, they will, they'll be a hindrance and you won't be able to succeed. So I will say that the one thing I am, I am learning in my old age uh, as, I approach, <laughs> as I approach 30, uh, oh, going on 30 oh, here Don't even months, start with me. <laughs> that there, there is value in, in patience, but, there, but I will also add to that that being able to start is a strength. I would say it is my it's my primary strength. It's the thing I bring to the table, uh, and I have to surround myself with people that bring other strengths to the table. Sometimes uh, that is you know uh, the 
bringing in folks that have more empathy and the ability to, to connect with folks in a way that maybe I can't, or, or again, having kids that offsets my personality to sort of slow things down uh, is huge in order to actually get things done. Right. So there you are, you've learned some lessons and I think you're now thinking about the third iteration of your career. So what, what happened? Yeah. So again, I, I just sort of said, well, if I take a job, I'm living my plan B. And again, at some point I have to, to realize that I'm maybe I'm the problem. Uh, maybe no one's going to actually give me what I want. And so I said, well, why don't I just start my own firm? We'll see how it goes. Uh, give myself a year or two. And if it goes well, great. If not, again, I'll go take a job. So I uh, set out and started my own RIA. I uh, did it very solo, uh, researched all the CRMs, all the compliance officers. I actually did my own uh, wrote my own ADV. And for anyone who's thinking about starting a firm, do not do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Been there. Learned. Uh, and, and so it took me, let's see, I got fired in April. I made the decision that I want to start my own firm in May. And by August, I had an RIA up and running there in Wisconsin um, wow. and just sort of hit the ground running to try to see if I could build out my own firm. You know, I think it's what's interesting though, and, and this is part of what I, I loved. And I, I, I read this somewhere that you kind of got to the point, which I think you're describing where, and maybe this is later on as well, you're, you're helping people to realize their dreams. But if you're not being true to your own, if you're not being true to that personal passion now, in many respects, you probably tried a bunch of different things, and you, but you were lucky because you did it when you were starting out. Whereas mm -hmm. I know I look around the industry and I just see so many people who probably should be trying something different because they've got that passion for it, but they're, they're more afraid of taking that step. Do you, do you see that as well? I do. We get hung up on, you know, but this is the way it's always been done. My clients yeah. aren't complaining. So why should I change? Mm -hmm. And change is hard. You know, it, it's tough to get, uh, it is tough to change sometimes, and, uh, but you've got to, if you're not growing, you're dying. And this is an easy business to get very comfortable in. We're very fortunate to have a business where we have just ridiculously high client retention rates. Uh, you know, in the 98% range, which is just crazy. No industry gets to claim that. Uh, and so we, we can get comfortable. And my fear is that we are, we're too comfortable and that things are sort of stagnated to the point that uh, I think we're going to experience 10, 15 years of change in a matter of a year or two. Uh, because technology is changing, marketing, the way that we market is changing, the way the businesses are built is changing. Uh, it's amazing to see everything that's sort of bubbling up. And I think when it hits, it's going to get, it's going to hit really hard and really fast. And I am very concerned that the advisors that feel very comfortable now, because things have been fine for the last decade, are going to wake up one day and just go, oh, crap. You know, I, I really wish I had listened to all those podcast episodes and, and <laughs> that, that sounded crazy at the time. Can, uh, can, we, can, we, can we talk about that for just a minute? Because I think it brings yeah. up a really interesting I, thing to explore. You know, I, I, I heard um, someone speaking recently that was talking about passive loyalty versus active loyalty and that, you know, one possible reason for the retention rates that all the advisors have is two things. One is the lack of differentiation between different firms. And second, the, um, you know, just the hassle and the friction of transferring accounts. And sure. that, you know, once once a, a significantly different alternative pops up that's really attractive to a bunch of people, those obstacles won't look that big and it could trigger the kind of the kind of uh, cascade that you're that you're talking about. And what how, how do we maybe there is is there any way that we can try to get a sense of of 
and Julie, you might have some some good input here since you're the researcher. I mean, is there any way that we can sort of feel that out and, and get an idea of whether or not that's a real risk or, or are we just, you know, talking amongst ourselves until something happens? You know, I, I think we have a couple of different firms we're talking about. If you're a 60-year-old advisor with a client base that's in their 60s and 70s and you've been working with them for two decades, you're probably fine. Your business can turn into the world's greatest annuity. You can just sort of work 10 hours, 15 hours a week, part-time, and sort of coast into the sunset. But that's not really who we're talking to, right? Like those business right. owners, they're going right. to do what they're doing. If you are trying to build a real business here um, and you are banking on uh, barriers of uh, barriers of leaving, such as account opening forms are just a real pain in the butt to fill out and doing all the transfers and all that, that stuff's getting real easy. Technology is making the ability to switch advisors much more streamlined and much easier uh, it's becoming easier to find advisors on the internet. Uh, you're no longer tied to just the guy that lives down the road. And so you went to him because, you know, your friend said he was good uh, and he sold you some stuff. Like the, it's becoming easier to switch advisors. Now we still have this amazing component of our, of our business. And, and this is what makes financial planning so great. And it's the reason I'm in this field is that we truly help clients live great lives. I mean, we don't just do some retirement planning and some investment planning and some taxes. I mean, we really do get at the core. If you're a real financial planner, you're getting at the core of what a client wants to do with their life, how they can live their great life, and then helping them achieve that dream. And, you know, when a client comes to us, they really expose themselves. I mean, they, you know, I always joke that they get financially naked in our office and they they show us how they spend their money. They show us their values. They tell us things that their partner, spouse, parents don't know. And it's, it's not easy to leave that relationship because you don't want to go do that again, but it's getting easier to do it. And to your point, and sort of the whole purpose of your podcast, which I'm, I'm thrilled with, is that when uh, the, a generic advisor down the street opens up and, and serves individuals, families, business owners, and women, uh, they may not be attracted to that. But when a, a firm opens up down the street that specializes in dentists that are selling their practice in the next five years, and your client is a dentist that's selling their practice in the next five years, they're going to go talk to them yeah. because they realize the power of expertise. So I think that's the big shift that, that uh, suddenly we're going to wake up and realize has happened and we didn't even see it happening. So you, when you started your RIA, initially, did you have that concept of a, of a clear target in mind or did that evolve over time? I did not. I, I will freely admit I failed uh, in every way to, to develop a niche market. I served my, my byline or my about us on my website said I serve individuals and families. So when I when I joke about that, I am joking about myself. Um, and part of it was just a I was not financially ready to start a firm. I really I had almost no money in the bank. I think I had like eight thousand uh, dollars, and all of that went into the business, which. Please, for anybody out there, do not take that path. Have a couple of years of savings before you get started because what it forced me to do or what I felt forced to do was accept any client that came in the door. Uh, but I learned very quickly that I was getting clients that were just, I, I did not enjoy working with folks that would come in and say, well, I just want you to manage my investments, which as a comprehensive financial planner was not a fun thing for me to do. I, I hated talking about, you know, bond yield curves. I mean, I, I learned it in CFP school, but I don't want to talk bond ladders ever again. Um, and so I, I quickly learned that I was find, that I was working with the wrong types of clients. Uh, but I did have a couple of clients that if I could just replicate them, you know, 40 times, I would have retired a happy camper. And 
And so I started looking at what is similar about them. And what is funny, especially given where I've sort of ended up business-wise, is that they were all uh, young professionals, typically in their 30s, that were starting their own small business, uh, typically as a service provider. Doctors, lawyers, uh, had an orthodontist. They were all starting sort of their own business. And I just, I loved getting in there and talking about their personal financial planning, but also their business and talking about how to set up their books and picking a bookkeeping software and how to market their new business and all of that and really found a passion there. So I sort of pivoted into that space uh, about a year into my business. Okay. And then, you know, and then obviously the story continued because you got to the point where you moved away from your business in order to tr- to help others focus on younger clients and work with younger advisors. Can you talk a bit about that that pivot? Sure. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a sucker for shiny objects. I am uh, very <laughs> AD, very entrepreneurial, and uh, and the the shiny object that I saw it took about a year to sort of see this. But after I started my firm, uh, I was very involved in Napthogenesis and FPA NextGen. I uh, had sort of started getting on the speaking circuit just a little bit, uh, mainly because I didn't have any money to go to conferences, and I found out if if uh, you spoke, they would pay for you to go to the conference, which was cool. And so uh, I, I started getting calls from young planners and, and they were saying, well, Alan, how did you do compliance? How do you get your clients? Uh, where are, you know, how did you select your CRM? And after a while, it, and I had a few people that I called when I started my firm and they always picked up the phone and I was so grateful for that. And so I just said, hey, if somebody's going to call me, I'm going to pick up the phone. And after a year, I looked back and I'd had 100 phone calls. 100 hour-long phone calls in the course of a year with 100 different people that were asking this question around, how do you start a firm? And so um, I had been working with Michael Kitsis uh, on uh, some various projects. We we met on Twitter. We've been internet dating for about seven years now. <laughs> oh, that, that's uh, nice for you, too. <laughs> if you need to a business partner, Twitter's where to go. Um, <laughs> and I sent him an email in December of 2013. So I'd had my business about a year and a half at that point. And said, hey, man, like, I'm getting a lot of questions. What if we package something together, uh, package something together and and make this a business? And we'll help a few people. I'm, I'm betting 15 or 20 people would love, you know, would pay for this. And we'll just, you know, I call it a side hustle. It'll be sort of a side gig. It'll be fun, something new, you know, kind of scratch my entrepreneurial itch. And, and he said, hey, you know what? I'm getting a lot of emails and phone calls, too, from people asking the same question. So let's do it. And so that was in December. And in April of 2014, we launched the XY Planning Network, which was built to be a platform to help advisors serve Gen X and Gen Y clients uh, using a monthly subscription fee model instead of an asset-based model, which was uh, the the way that I ran my firm. And uh, it, it sort of just took off. Uh, we we underestimated the market size uh, that, that was interested. And so as of this recording, we have about 350 advisors in our network, uh, approaching three years old now. And so about halfway through that process, about a year in, I realized when we hit about 100 members, I got a call from a client and a call from a member uh, in the same day. And I returned the call to the member and not to the client. <laughs> and and that was the day I said, I'm no longer the best advisor for these clients. And right. so I ended up selling my practice and uh, turning my focus to, to XY Planning Network full time. That's very cool. So tell tell us what you're helping advisors do. I mean, you, you talked about setting up a firm, mm-hmm. but t- maybe just give us the, the overview of, of the network. Yeah, it's a couple of different pieces. One is just demystifying the how to start a business process. Uh, compliance is this big, scary, 
uh, unknown. And, and really, compliance in the RIA space is not that hard, uh, but it has been, especially if you've ever been broker-dealer world or had to deal with FINRA, it's just terrifying. And so we just wanted to make it easier. So we handle their compliance and their initial ADV registration and that sort of thing, which uh, is a huge value add for, for advisors because they just don't know how to do it. You generally file one ADV in your lifetime uh, to actually start an RIA. Um, you know, how to select technology. There are dozens of CRMs and planning softwares and scheduling softwares and all of that. And you can spend months, and I did this, uh, and many of our founding members spent months analyzing all these different softwares. And so instead of everyone doing that over and over and over, let's just, we just provide that platform of technology that we all sort of centered on and selected and just make it available to them as part of the, the membership. Uh, and so we wanted to make it easier to start a firm, but we also wanted to establish the education and coaching to be able to bring financial planning to the next generation. Uh, the vast majority of fee-only advisors uh, still base their, their firms on an asset center management model, which works really well if you're serving people with assets. But what is 1% of zero uh, if they have no money or they have just debt? Uh, you can't make any money on that business model. And people kept telling me when I launched a firm, you know, you no one will pay you for planning. You've got to wrap it into that AUM fee. Uh, kind of like how they told fee-only advisors, no one will ever pay you AUM. You have to do it in commissions 30 years ago. Uh, and we just said, you know what? I, I don't know. Young people pay for their lives monthly. I mean, everything's a monthly bill. Why wouldn't they pay their advisor monthly? And so part of our platform is just providing that education uh, to, to, to be able to serve younger clients. But I'll say that the most important piece and the reason people stay in the network and they continue to, to pay our fee and, and leverage what we offer is that we give them a community of other advisors that don't think they're crazy. You know, our advisors are the ones that go to conferences in t-shirts and jeans and they talk about serving young people and people look at them like they're insane. And there's like, you can't make any money on it. What is this monthly fee thing? And we give them the group that doesn't think they're crazy when they want to roll out an e-course or they want to start a podcast, you know, and, and we have other people that have started podcasts that can help. And it's just such a collaborative community. So uh, there's a there's a few different components, but ultimately it really is our mission is to bring financial planning to the next generation. And we're leveraging uh, the advisory practices to do that. So, Alan, let's dig into that. Uh, so, so. Um, <clears throat> let's dig into to what your what those firms are providing those those X Y Gen mm -hmm. clients. What what? Tell me a little bit about the the niche, the experience that that you're helping firms create for that generation. So I like to joke that Gen X and Gen Y is not a niche, right? It's like 150 million Americans. So we're talking about half the population. Um, but because the advisory world has focused so heavily on the retirement community. Uh, and retiring baby boomers that we were actually able to carve out a niche of half the population, which is awesome. Uh, but but we would tell our advisors, you can't have Gen X and Gen Y. We have that. So you go pick a more specific niche. So we have an advisor that specializes in working with emergency room physicians that are graduating residency. Mm -hmm. and uh, And he knows all of the uh, hospitals in the area around that medical school. And you know what? He has actually helped uh, the last dozen ER doctors that those hospitals have uh, have hired negotiate their contracts. So he knows all the contracts for the last 12 hires they've made. So he can help the 13th person do it. And so they become his client. Uh, we have others that specialize in working with uh, 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 women that are in pre-IPO technology companies that are executives. So they get really specific. 
So the service model really depends on who they're serving. Because if you tell me, Alan, I want to serve young professionals, I have to give you this sort of this generic service model. But if you tell me, hey, I want to serve uh, families that have a child in high school and help them with their college planning, well, suddenly the service model gets a lot more clear, uh, you know, as does the marketing plan for how we're going to go find those clients. So uh, we are very, very niche focused uh, that we want all of our advisors to have a niche so that they can design a firm built specifically for that client. Uh, but I will say it's comprehensive financial planning. It's the same thing we always talk about where it is basically anything that touches their money or their personal financial life. Uh, but it looks very different than traditional because we're actually building firms to serve a specific client base instead of whoever lives within you know 10 miles of my office, which is sort of how we've historically built firms. So, can you, sorry, go ahead, Steve. So, so what does it take to, so, so can you step us through the process of, of helping? I, th I think, you know, your comment <clears throat> or your description of how you approach that uh, is really insightful. And just to give you a preview of what I'm working on, you know, you're talking not so much about niches, but ab about uh, progressively more narrow target markets mm -hmm. where, you know, the, the, the target market is the people you're trying to attract and the niche is the experience that you're creating to attract a portion of that market, which is why you can have a target market that's tremendously huge, like, you know, the X and Y generation, mm -hmm. but, but you're creating a niche that will only attract a small portion of that. So, but, but what, what, what is it? Um, so walk us through the process of, you know, refining that and narrowing it down and, and designing, you know, are there, if, if you're a, if, if there's a financial advisor who's listening, who says, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm too diffuse and I'm, I'm not focused enough on a particular group of clients. Is there a, a process they can go through that you could just sort of overview with the steps that they would go through to, to design it specifically for that, to the kind of client they want to work with? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. So for advisors that have actually, that either have a business or have been working with a very diverse range of clients, uh, my recommendation is just sit there and close your eyes and just imagine the perfect client walks in the door. This is the client that when they call you, you're excited uh, to answer the phone. You're excited to prep for their meeting. You're excited whenever they come into your office or, or meet with you. And think about what it is about that person that you like. What is it about their problems that you enjoy helping them solve? Is it, a, is it certain professional pieces, like you just love doing salary negotiations with a hospital? Uh, maybe so. Maybe it's a certain personality, sort of more psychometric uh, traits and, and, or a life stage or whatnot. I mean, you can, it, the, the number, I mean, if we were just to sit down and come up with niche markets, we'd come up with millions of them. I mean, there, you can be so specific and so different. But who do you just love working with? And look at that target market and ask yourself, you know, what, what can you be the best at? Maybe you're the best at serving target executives or you're the best at serving, uh, you know, there's one firm out there that their specialty is, is he only works with bass fishermen that compete in bass fishing tournaments. That, what a random thing, but he's a bass fisherman. He has a boat and, he and his prospect meetings are taking people out bass fishing. Like it's, it's brilliant because he's the guy for people that win Apparently, there are million-dollar purses in bass fishing tournaments. Um, who knew? So, But that's his passion, and those are the people he loves to connect with. Because if you try to force it and you and you say, like, oh, well, these this, this collection of people over here have a lot of money. Like, I bet ranchers are a good target market because no one talks to ranchers. But you don't know anything about ranching, and you don't really enjoy ranching. Like, you're going to be miserable. You're not going to be happy. So 
uh, just try to come up with who's that ideal client. Who do you just really love working with and just and then start to build the service model around them. I'm so happy that somebody is finally saying age and gender are not niche markets. <laughs> they are not. And but I, I love it. So I mean, when you think then, so you've built this extraordinary experience, and you know, we're talking about becoming referable. Obviously, mm-hmm. we believe this is a big part of it. But how do you see this then playing into that notion of referability and growth? Yeah. So have you ever had anyone come up to you and go, listen, guys, I just had the most amazing beer. It, it was a Bud Light. You should totally go to the store and get a Bud Light. <laughs> no one says that. Uh, no. And, and I, I live in Montana where we have tons of craft breweries and and people come up and go, hey, I just tried this amazing Bayer and Hefeweizen. You have got to go try it. And I will go get that beer. Well, and, we got to get that so in the I, show notes right there, first of all. <laughs> You could, I could, I could still have bison for you, but um, I think it's German. But what I like in this this sort of shift into niche marketing and referability, uh, very much to the beer marketplace, and it's just because I enjoy craft beer. And so, you know, we'll always have these sort of generic Bud Lights, Coors Lights that serve the masses, and and but it's boring. No one really enjoys it. They just get it because it's got a big brand name, and they spend tens of millions of dollars on marketing. What gets people really excited are these unique flavors, these unique beers that these local breweries are putting out that that almost have a cult following. And those are the ones where you actually want to get a group together and go and try their new the, the new beer that they're putting out. And so that's what when I look at financial planning firms, you want to be a craft beer. You don't want to you don't want to compete with Bud Light. You don't need tens of millions of people drinking your beer, uh, you know, or, or using your service to be successful, you need 40 to 100. You need 40 to 100 people that love you and think you're amazing and that you solve their problem in a unique way that no one else could. And that's how you become referable because you suddenly solve a, a set of problems that they can identify. And instead of saying, hey, my financial planner is great, you should go talk to them. They can say, hey, my financial planner works with people that have a child under the age of five or expecting, and they're specialist in the way that California's disability programs work for new parents. They know everything. You've got to go talk to them. I, I, I love the idea of developing a cult following, and I'll probably steal that and build something around it. That's, that's, <laughs> Please that's do. Brilliant. So, can we, if, if, so since Julie started um, you know, bringing up the idea of referability, um, you know, once you've done that, once you've created the microbrew that you're going to deliver to your unique audience, um, do you find that, that, that younger clients refer differently or, or that their approach to it is different than, um, than other generations? You know, I do actually think younger clients are more willing to talk about their financial planner. Uh, and, and I have no research to back this. So Julie may I be do. able to correct me on this. Uh, <laughs> and and just, you're right. <laughs> Just anecdotally, I was sitting at a, at a restaurant the other day at the bar uh, with my fiance, and these two guys are sitting next to us, and they're total like ski bum meatheads, and they're talking about their 401ks. And I was just like, <laughs> and, and talking about like how to select a 401k. And then uh, maybe two days later, we're at the barbershop, and, and one girl is talking about that uh, that she's the executive or executive of her parents' estate and isn't quite sure what to do there and where she, can she go to learn more. So. I, I start to hear more conversations among younger generations that are depression era baby boomers just and, and their parents just really didn't embrace. 
And so I do think they're more willing to say, I have a financial planner. Um, I think historically it was sort of taboo, like, oh, you must be rich. It's like whenever you got, you had a maid, like no one knows you have a maid or a cleaning lady come in because <laughs> heaven forbid people think you're pretentious. Um, and, and that's sort of how financial planning has been. I think we're shifting away from that and, and younger people are willing to, to ask this question, but, or, or they're willing to, to share that they have a financial planner, but they don't like Matt. They don't like master generalists. They don't want people that serve everyone. They want people that have built something just for them, something that they can, you know, like t- that they can embrace sort of that cult following that they just love uh, to talk about and can explain. And so I really think that's where the, the niche market comes in is that they're looking for something unique. They're looking for something different. Uh, and again, for lack of a better uh, a better analogy, they're looking for that craft beer. There's a reason the craft beer industry is booming among millennials. And it's because it's something that they can grab a hold of and just love. And they can be the first one that got it or whatever. Uh, and, and I see that that will overtake financial planning as the millennials continue to grow up and get older and, and take on more and more of the assets and, and, you know, basically will be the primary client of the financial planning industry in another couple of decades. And yeah, it's interesting. So, I mean, that it's hard to get a lot of data depending on where you cut the age off and the ages change. We, you know, for years, it seems we talked about younger clients and they were always under 30 or under 40, but now you're under 50 and you're, and you're demonstrating, those same characteristics that we've been talking about. So, you know, who knew people would age and, <laughs> and they wouldn't suddenly become their parents just because they, you know, passed over 40 <laughs> or something. So it's, yeah. And, you know, like, I mean, the next generation, it, they're starting to, I think the oldest one's like 22 now, right? So they're starting to think about these things in a... Yeah, in it a depends on which generation we look at. I mean, X is, yeah. you know, in their... I guess, early 50s down to their mid-30s. Why is mid-30s down into their 20s? I mean, uh, for kid, kids that are in college right now may not actually be Gen Y. They may be whatever we're going to call the next one. Um, we haven't, no one seems to have picked yet. I, I've heard post-millennial, which as a self-serving and self-absorbed millennial, I love because they named it after me. It, well, there um, you go. Well, Gen <laughs> Z, right? We hear about Gen it could Z. Be Gen Z, yep. The edge generation. I, there's a few different, um, a few different ones I've heard, but you know, the one caution that I will, uh, I'll give uh, just because sort of looping back to, to whether or not we're going to serve the next generation is mm-hmm. that uh, firms have, have approached this all wrong, I think. And the way that we've approached it has, has I, I guess, made us think that there's no marketplace among young people. They'll never pay for financial planning. And it was because we rolled out this sort of happy meal model of financial planning. We said like, oh, you're so cute and little. Like you don't really need a big burger and a big fry. Like, so let's give you a little burger, little fry. We'll throw in a toy and make it kid friendly. Uh, And that's what we've done with financial planning. We said, oh, you're not big enough for my big expensive financial planning service. We'll just give it, we'll trim it down. You don't need the high level tax planning or social security. And we'll throw in a robo advisor and make it millennial friendly. They'll all buy it. And guess what? None of them bought it. (laughs) None of them wanted this like, financial planning light, they want something that is built for them. Uh, and and if you think that, you know, they're just going to be waiting around until mommy and daddy die and leave the money and then suddenly show up on your doorstep, uh, you're sadly mistaken. So it's, it's so interesting to see sort of these shifting trends uh, in the advisory community and what we're talking about and what we're actually doing. Uh, because, you know, for a long time, it was we always talked about succession planning, and no one ever actually did it. And now we're talking about serving the next generation, and no one's actually doing it. 
Uh, but we do have a group that's doing it. And uh, it'll be very interesting to see over the next you know, 10 or 15 years, again, as those younger clients grow up, uh, if they're suddenly attracted to the older expensive firms that wouldn't work with them before, uh, which I highly doubt, or if they're going to stay with their with their you know cult following advisor uh, that that is built specifically for them, and I think we all know how that's going to turn out. Yeah, yeah. So if you know we're just hitting time, but there's a just quickly. Um... If you're an advisor listening to this, so you've suggested there's obviously some some error in the, the way mm-hmm. that a lot of folks have been approaching this. What's that sort of one next step or thought that you think advisors should be having if they genuinely want to serve this this uh, niche well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I would say don't again don't consider you know the younger generations not a niche. Let's um, let's find something more specific. Find your calling. Find what gets you out of bed in the morning. That group of people you're so passionate about that you would serve them for free if you could, but you don't have to. You know, and, and who is who are you just so excited to serve and start to build the service model for them. Don't worry about the fact that you have existing clients. They don't go to your website anyway to find out you changed your niche. Uh, you know, just if you have to keep serving the folks that you've been serving, that's fine. But be willing to to put a stake in the ground and say, these are the people that I'm the best advisor for and serve them well. And the truth is, I bet what you'll find is you don't, and, and obviously you, you guys are more uh, knowledgeable about this than I am, but you don't even have to ask for the referral. At what point you're the person for them, they're going to tell everyone they know that's an ideal fit for you because you have become so referable because it's so specific. Uh, it's hard to refer people to, to a generalist. It's very easy to refer people to a specialist. And so you've got to figure out what are you going to be the specialist at and, and be willing to go with it. So that's, yeah, thank you for that. So just quickly, what's, uh, what's your next bright, shiny thing and uh, where can people find you? <laughs> you know, uh, we are actually, we, uh, Kitsis and I have, dove off the deep end into tech development. So we uh, we got very Obviously. frustrated with the fact <laughs> that, uh, yeah, let me tell you, that for any listeners that are out there, this is a shiny object you should ignore at all costs. <laughs> do not do tech development. I don't, I, everybody warned me and I didn't stuff. listen to them. <laughs> time and money. It's a black hole of, of feature updates. So, uh, so we're in the process. Uh, and by the time this goes live, we may have already launched. We're, we're just a couple weeks away from launching Advice Pay, which is a payment processor for financial advisors that does uh, one-time and monthly subscription billing uh, using ACH and credit cards in a compliant manner, which no one has ever built before. So we have stepped off into it. Uh, we have a, a network of advisors that need it, but we're also seeing the, the, the trends in the industry are moving towards um, towards retainers and flat fees and away from just asset-based pricing, but there's no easy way to actually get paid, uh, which I think is holding a lot of advisory firms back from offering some of these services. So we wanted to streamline that. So that's sort of our next, uh, the the next shiny object along with, you know, completely honestly learning how to scale a business. Uh, I've never, never had a business with uh, 12 team members until today. And so learning how to run a, run a real business instead of one that's just myself is, is an ongoing challenge. So uh, those are sort of the two pieces that are facing me over the next 12 months. Well, that is just awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you being here. Love chatting with you. And uh, we'll make sure that we've got all those links in the show notes. So thanks again. Sounds great. Thanks so much for having me on. Hi, it's Julie again. It was great to have you with us on Becoming Referrable. 
If you like what you've been hearing, please do us a favor and rate us on iTunes. It really does help. You can get all the links, show notes, and other tidbits from these episodes at becomingreferrable.com. You can also there get our free report, Three Referral Myths That Limit Your Growth, and connect with our blogs and some other resources. Thanks so much for joining us.